Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi everyone, welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores and with us today we have David Lorenz. Hello. Hi Sam, how are you doing and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome, welcome. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about sort of who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm David Lorenz and I'm the founder of Lunas and um, we re-engineer vehicles to EV powertrain. So we take vehicles that exist, uh, whether industrial or passenger vehicles, uh, some of which are behind me in the factory today, some of the most beautiful classic cars, and uh, we electrify them and restore them. Yeah, and I, well, we've known each other for quite a while, actually, since before before Lunas. I know you had, you had some sort of... I don't think when we met whether Lunas was on your mind, but let's, let's sort of dive back a little bit because it's the start of all this. Um, yeah, how did you get into this industry? I know you weren't really in cars before, no, exactly. So I came into automotive in 2018. Prior to that, I was in hospitality for 13 years. I had a members club in London and a few restaurants and really was my focus of my life and got married, had a daughter and realized I wanted to pivot out of the industry. And my love was always around automotive and my absolute passion was always around cars like so many of us. Yeah. And uh, always had a passion for classics. And it really got unveiled when I met my wife 11 years ago and her father had a small garage in Chiswick, little shop for car garage, but looked after a lot of classic cars. Mm. And he allowed me really to dive into classic car ownership, obviously having a garage that you could trust that you knew you could take your cars to. Yeah. And th- that passion was sprung and my life was about obviously working and then classic cars and my wife. And, uh, when Luna came, my daughter, who the company's named after, oh, nice. I really decided that it was time to look to do what I was in really loved doing. And, you know, out of those hospitality years, seven of them I absolutely loved. And it was, the, you know, it never felt like I worked a day. Three years felt like work. And then three years I really tried to pivot and try to angle out. And uh, in 2018, 
wrote the business plan of Lunaz, um, actually in 2017, sorry, and spent a year looking for the right engineer to set this up with. And funny enough, crossed paths with John Hilton after 11 months on an airplane, actually. It's one of those ones that you see out of a movie. He engaged in conversation with me. <laughs> actually, by pure chance, I, it's actually a quite funny story. I had a, a supercar driver club magazine uh, with yeah. me, which my wife had given to me saying uh take it away from the house really and i put it on the plane seat in front of me and uh i fell asleep for most of the flight my daughter had been up at five in the morning and i'd slept until it said uh 20 minutes to landing and john engaged in a conversation with me saying uh, you're a member of supercar driver club and uh i actually said yeah i am but i've never done any of the events at the time i joined up i'd seen they'd done some amazing yeah. stuff but I, I said i wasn't really a supercar fan i was much more of a classic car fan and started talking about classics that I loved and a couple that I had. And then for some reason, he was the first person I'd ever told without an NDA of the business plan that I put together, looking at, you know, part of a business that would transform classics into electric. And John then went into his history and uh, being ex-technical director of Renault Formula One, uh, did 20 years, won back-to-back championships with Alonso, and uh, then left Formula One and set up his own company called Flybrid, which took the curse system from F1 and put hybrid systems into uh, refuse trucks, JCBs, and uh, the likes of some of the main supercar brands. And literally, it was one of those moments where I had the business plan. I had John Hilton sitting next to me, and uh, I told him we were going to be business partners in a 20-minute conversation, uh, of which he thought I was joking, obviously. (laughs) And uh, I took his number, and luckily he gave me the correct number. And when he came back from Spain, I called him when he was at the airport and said, I've got a business to set up with you. And... uh, Drove to his house that day. He, he had literally still had his bags in the reception of his house. And uh, I pitched him the business plan that I had, which was pretty vague at the time. It was maybe five, six pages, but it had the spider diagram on of 53 different applications with EV powertrains stuck in the middle of it and classic cars, kit cars, re- refuse trucks, ambulances, fire engines, and just a whole array of vehicles that I thought, you know, as we transform and we go for clean air mobility, how are we going to transform the two billion vehicles that already exist and what categories do you think we will carry through for the future? Yes, yeah, so p- pitched in the business, then I went relentless and pitched him another three times the business, kept going backwards to his house and uh, finally got him to say yes, as long as I did things correctly and did things his way on the powertrain and that he had full technical sign off and I was in charge of the rest of the business. And the rest is history. Four years later, we're sitting in the Lunas Design Factory here where there's 130 people working on some of the most beautiful British marks of the Rolls Royces, Bentleys, Jaguars, uh, Range Rovers, and now Aston Martins. And uh, we're just in building the new factory now, which is six times larger than this. And uh, took keys a couple of weeks ago and for the industrial application. So moving ahead, we've built our first electric refuse trucks and now moving into other sectors. And... Uh, yeah, my life changed from the day I met John. It, it and, changed uh, a lot. In that, um, going back to his house like multiple times to sort of re-pitch mm. the business, what what changed in the pitches? And did did that like, was that process actually really useful for you as well? It, nothing really changed. It was the same pitch. It was, you know, the first time he declined me, he said that he was retired and didn't want to work. He's yeah. 55 years old. You don't retire at that age. You're you've got a technically genius mind it ticks very quickly your brain you you his garden was immaculate i mean every blade of grass was basically <laughs> to the same degree you can't retire like this and uh he had enjoyed a chapter after he had uh, done a work off after selling his company 
And it just, you know, I went back to his house, delivered it again. He declined me a second time. He actually declined me three times, and it was the fourth time lucky. And uh, the fourth time I did say I'd give up absolutely everything in my life to do this with him. And I said I'd exit uh, the members club I had in restaurant, and if it took it, I would set up in any location he wished, um, and I would move for the role. And um, that really was the moment where it pivoted slightly. I, stand, I remember very clearly I was standing on his doorstep and it was raining outside. I felt like a dog in the rain, like begging <laughs> this individual to start this business with me. And uh, he said, yes, as long as we do it his way on the powertrain. And obviously I accepted. The next day I asked him where he would like to set up. I had Bista Heritage in mind for the heritage side of the brand. Yeah. Um, and then I had Silverstone in mind for the industrial side of the plan. And I put these in the business plan initially. Um, the next day, we actually came to Silverstone and looked at one of the units. And his previous company, Flybrid, was based at Silverstone. So he knew absolutely everyone here. It's, uh, I went into the innovation center. It was, he had been based here for so long that, you know, as soon as I walked in, I realized that Silverstone was definitely the place. And they, they've got two million square foot planned here of these industrial units and I mean, this factory here overlooks the Silverstone circuit. I think I'd say I've got the largest box at Silverstone. <laughs> I think you've seen it. And, uh, yeah. you, you know, you can see the entire track from our boardroom here. And decided to set up at Silverstone. And the next day came here, went to the innovation, had the agent uh, show us the first unit. And I took the unit on the spot because I hadn't got anything signed with John at this point. He'd verbally agreed. And I knew that if I locked in the lease straight away there and then with the agent that we were in. And uh, he really thought I was still joking at this point. And uh, within about 14 days, we went to lawyers to exchange on and complete on the uh, build of the uh, space that was being built. And uh, at that point, I gave up everything else in my life. And uh, Lunas began. So, I mean, and, and the unit that you started in, I say started mm. in, but is that the same unit that, you're, that I visited? So you when one? you last came here, you came to the uh, Lunas Design Factory. Yeah. Um, I previously had 10,000 square foot just adjacent to this where we started building oh, the okay. prototypes. So it was real, you know, there were 12 of us in there. It was a uh, real startup territory. It was working long, long hours as such. And uh, not that it still isn't like that. And um, yeah, we worked around the clock to build these prototypes. So in 2018 and 2019, we were really behind the scenes, you know, building the first Jaguar electric sports car being the XK120 and the Rolls-Royce Phantom 5. And, you know, my business plan had always been to build an electric powertrain, which was suitable to scale up or down uh, by multiple vehicle classes. And I really wanted to test that hypothesis. So what I did is we started with the Jaguar XK120 because Prince Harry had driven that electric E-type. I wanted something slightly different. For me, the XK120 is one of the most beautiful cars in the world. It's got those lines of the Bugatti. It's, you know, some would say the E-Type because of Ferrari Enzo stating that it's the most beautiful, but really the XK for me has the lines. And started with the XK120, and what I did is I surprised the 12 people that were working at the time with the Rolls-Royce Phantom 5. Okay. And I said, we set out a goal to build one powertrain that can be scaled up and down, build these two cars side by side. One's an eight-seater limousine, one's a two-seater sports car. And uh, I remember the garage door opening and I hadn't told anyone. And I'd <laughs> gone over to the US and brought this Phantom 5. And um, 
I'd had it delivered and I remember the garage door opening and I said, oh, we're building a second car. So we've got two prototypes. And obviously they thought this was another Jaguar. And their faces, <laughs> it was a good bonding exercise to realize uh, exactly the path we we're on with Luna's design. So yeah, then uh, launched that at uh, beginning of 2020 on March 22nd, just before uh, obviously a global pandemic kicked yeah. off. Did you, two days before. Did you launch them both at the same time? I can't remember. No, I, so the, the Jaguar came out in 2019 and the Rolls-Royce came out in 2020. Okay. Yeah. And I really wanted to look at different markets with Luna's design. And, you know, one of the first keys of Luna's was how do you introduce classics to new individuals and other pockets? And I really wanted to answer the usability, sustainability and drivability question that stops so many people going near classic car ownership. Yeah. And, you know, 99% of people love a classic car. They see them drive past. Everyone turns their heads. Everyone's got a love for the appreciation of what I would say is a moving piece of artwork. But very few people want to go near ownership of a classic car. It's a real, what you'd say, niche industry as such. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be niche if you can make them drivable and reliable and usable and answer the question around the sustainability front. And I really wanted to introduce those types of categories of individuals to classic car ownership, as well as institutions. And the reason I started, again, with the Rolls Royces was really looking at fleet cars, looking at hotels, casinos, restaurants, looking at the S-classes, Bentley Marsars and Rolls-Royce Phantoms that they had and realizing that there actually wasn't a luxury EV on the market at the time. And there wasn't one that breeded quality as such that you'd want to be chauffeur-driven in. And uh, I really wanted to answer that. And building the first electric Rolls-Royce, obviously, was that answer. Launching two days before a national lockdown was interesting when our whole target (laughs) audience was hotels. Um, But, yeah, it's uh, fantastic to see that now uh, all picking up. Yeah, I remember seeing you at a track day, I think, at Silverstone. And you were there in the Jag. And actually, I'm not sure at that point whether I think it was in build, you were working on it. Um, And talk to me a little bit about that sort of development process and the sort of, presumably, the car, well, we know the cars have changed a lot since you started. But what were some of the lessons you learned in the first year, two years of building these things? Yeah, the biggest lesson of all was building prototypes is very easy. And building a one-off is, when I say very easy, easier. The big transition for Lunas was obviously when we scaled up to this factory, which has a capacity of 100 cars a year, where you want every one of them identical. Your build process Mm. needs to be tight. Your manuals need to be correct. And the back-end side of the engineering, so there's now 62 engineers working next door here. And getting everything documented and everything done correctly was probably the biggest challenge of Luna's design to date and real great lessons for what we have encountered or encountering for Luna's applied technologies as well. But really going back to the early days, it was, it was just lovely having a small team where you would move forward every day that, you know, you had less meetings, but more on, on hand as such on the vehicles. And you know, putting together the powertrain initially, there was a lot of what you'd say background work before we started the works. And, you know, we had a nine month process where it was computer led, it was meeting supplies, it was understanding the market space and what was out there. And then it went into, okay, now how can we take ownership of absolutely every aspect of the build? And I think, you know, when you came to the factory here, you see that everything's in-house, the restoration, the fabrication, the prep, the paint, the wiring looms, battery build, power electronics, 
everything is done internally here. And I wanted ownership from start to finish of the entire build process mm. of the car. I'm really trying to learn that and understand that, visit others in this space and understand the quality at which people are building these cars, knowing that I wanted to try and excel within this space. And uh, yeah, it's been a fascinating journey and I've loved every minute of it. <laughs> every minute, yeah. <laughs> Even no, it, the uh, late nights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's because um, it, there's lots of there's lots of people in this space now. Loose, loosely, I'm saying this space because not everyone's in this space. Um, where you can take, you know, you can buy a car or own a car and take it to someone, and they can put, you know, a Tesla battery pack in it and a, some motors and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And a lot of them, not all of them, use the phrase engineered quite a lot mm. um and i think when i came to visit you guys for the first time and you were like here is our room of however many 50 engineers yeah 62 of them sitting 62 there, like, sitting there looking at CAD. <laughs> <laughs> you're like ah i don't think everyone does it like this i've got a feeling i'm not sure but i've got a feeling not everyone does it like this so what is the what is the difference and how does that process, like, you know, your process versus possibly just straight up people doing it? Um, yeah, exactly. And, so and my, my, absolute, my absolute key focus here was never to build one-offs. It was to productionize each vehicle run that we did, yeah. which, which meant engineering it from the ground up, not a hands-on vehicle before you've actually, you know, correctly designed the vehicle as such. And that, that's why we've gone into, we've launched the various platforms and, you know, we've got the DB6 platform for the Astons. We've got the Range Rover Classic platform. We've got the Bentley S series and the Rolls-Royce Clouds and the Phantom platform. But they're ones that we've correctly engineered that we've built our prototypes. We've validated the vehicles. We've gone through uh, testing on that vehicle. And then we've released it to the public to then uh, take allocation slots for these vehicles. And, it, you know, for me, it was always about getting into production with vehicles and proving the user case of what Lunas can do with not just a 1960s and 50s vehicle, but how we could then transform that into, you know, the modern industrial vehicles, which I'm sure we'll touch on later yeah. in this conversation. And it was a real proof of engineering, proof of quality and proof of concept, which really was wider spread to Lunas. And, you know, the carryover work of all of the R&D that's gone into obviously Lunas design has carried over onto the Lunas group uh, portfolio. And, it's it's allowed us to invest heavily into Lunar's design and to the technical side because of it, the wider aspects of the business of what we're doing with the industrial fleets and you know working with councils and government authorities and fleet operators around the world now. And obviously, not everyone can do that. If you don't have a wider yeah. aspect of business, you're not going to go and invest X amount in you know re-engineering a classic car. You're going to do it with a budget constraint as such and not have the technology advancements that you'd have by uh, really investing behind the powertrain aspect and you know even looking after all of the own software management and battery management systems everything's done internally so we're in full control of exactly what that car is and it, it really allows you to tailor the vehicle for the required use and um no it's fantastic have i have i taken you out in one of the cars yet no when you last came i don't think you had time did you no I, uh, yeah, i'm not sure we did a quick pop in as yeah, we got, we've got to do that at some point. I'm really Absolutely. I'm intrigued. Do, do you ever bring them back home? Yes, yeah, so I, I used to drive the Phantom quite a lot in London. And then I realized driving a six meter long car in London 
I swear the streets have got smaller. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, I tend not to drive like the Jaguar I daily drive. And, um, you know, I really wanted to get used to driving electric vehicles. And when I first started the company, I'd rarely driven an electric car. And yeah. everyone kept saying, test every car before you build your own. And I refrained from driving other people's electric cars because, you know, for example, a Tesla, most incredible piece of technology. But I didn't want to be that to be the comparison to our first yeah. ever electric car that we've built. So I really refrained and then obviously started driving our Jaguar and then started comparing it to every vehicle out there to what areas are we going to look to improve and what areas are our focus at this point. Understanding that it's a car from the 50s rather than a 2022 vehicle. Yeah. But what are the modern standards that we want to try and uh, account for? Yeah, that's it. Because it's your, you need to approach, I guess, or start looking at those projects from a, I'm a car person. I like old cars. What do we want to sort of retain, keep? What can we chuck out? What benefits can have electric cars have? Because all modern EVs are not designed with that at all. They're designed to be a you know in, intensely capable modern bit of kit. So yeah, it's quite it's quite different. How have you found? Let's say I, I imagine Jaguar probably not particularly good at building cars exactly the same. As in yes, some modern standards. Uh, I've got to say, and it's across the board. It's not just Jaguar. It's classic cars in general. Well, yeah. they, they went down a line. There was one individual on one side, one individual on the other. You often find little engravings and little things in the cars that, you know, Bill and Bob did one side and the other. And uh, they are different sizes. And uh, But it's, it's part of the characteristic of the car. And it, it's where do you go on that line? Like, do you want it to be absolutely perfect when you restore it do you want to keep one side longer than the other how do you want the car to be what how it originally came out the factory or do you want to correct it and it's always a to and fro with our design team here like where do we go how far do we push it and we take every car back to a full body off restoration i mean they are taken down to every nut and bolt and uh i think we did a quick tour when you were here and you saw just the level at which i i remove seals i remove every component on that car to really bring it back to the day it left the factory, but also taking its characteristics. And uh, yeah, they are all different sizes and you've got to take that into account. You're not doing, when, you, when you're working with CAD, you're taking into factors of accounts that, you know, there are variable sizes within these cars. So you're not going millimeter precision as such yeah. when you push a batch back against the cooling system, for example, because the bulkheads on the Range Rovers, uh, they're very different. And uh yeah, you just got to factor that in when designing these cars. And I got to say, it's probably one of the larger challenges with the classics yeah. over the modern industrial vehicles that we're doing, where they are precise and every one of them that comes here is identical. And um, But those challenges we face, And uh, but it's great working with them and it drives some people a little mad occasionally when something doesn't fit that has been uh, done correctly and is in production already. Yeah. And there's always slight adaptations to certain elements. Yeah, and I guess if you know that, and I guess the question is like, you want to know how far out can it be? <laughs> you know, like if you, and then. Yeah, an, I, an inch is safe to say. Okay, okay, yeah. I mean, we, we've, had, we've had a door on one side to a door on the other, an inch different, which is outstanding. It's nice. actually remarkable that it, it even works. And I've got to say, the door, it shuts perfectly. It's like, it's pretty remarkable that it, it can change that drastically. It is on a. It's on a long wheelbase car that we've done, and it really was. And when you look at how they did long wheelbase cars back in the day, it's pretty hysterical. They literally cut the car 
and extended it. Oh, nice. And uh, like when you strip down like a Range Rover long wheelbase, you can just see the extra metal that they've <laughs> added to the vehicle. It is a, it's what you'd call a cut and shut. And, nice. uh, it's what in modern terms you'd call a cut and shut. Back then it was an extended long wheelbase. And, yeah, uh, a luxury item. Yeah, it, it's a luxury item and it's amazing having that extra uh, extra leg room in the rear. But we do then look at cars and we look at, you know, should we be improving them in any way? We, we put in extra support bars in some vehicles where the doors are extended. We always look to where we believe we can improve the safety or where we can improve the base build of the vehicle. But always then retaining the absolute classic car from the outside. So one of my set criteria is from outside that you cannot tell the car's electric. And also when you poke through the window and you have a quick look, it looks completely original. Even though we've got so many design features within these cars and we use weave leather on the Jaguars or double pleats on the Rolls Royces and six different wood classes, etc. But you would still look and see it in the design. I haven't tried modernizing it too much, even though you do have all modern entertainment, Apple CarPlay throughout all of the vehicles, heated seats, air conditioning. Uh, you know, even in the Rolls Royces, you've got laptop and video in the rear compartment, a screen in the middle where the nice. driver can listen to sat nav in the front on the Apple CarPlay. And in the rear, you can be watching movies and have two sound systems split between the car. So we've tried to add all the modern cons of what you'd want in a 2022 Rolls Royce, or but also subtly behind features and really trying to stay with the aesthetics of what these cars were all about. Yeah. Have you done cruise control? Cruise control, yes. It's uh, it's one of those things that, you know, when you are on motorways these days, it's it's just a luxury function that we're so used to having. Yeah. And I, I wanted to answer all of the points that were there for the average driver, not a classic car driver. You know, classic car drivers don't expect cruise control, but someone that hasn't owned a classic car before does expect cruise control. And, uh, yeah, so we really tried looking at every feature and um, working around that perimeter. And then I remember like your the dashes loose like pretty much look like the originals but you've adapted them quite a lot to have different you know dials for the things that you need rather than what you know because it's not doing revs um, and all that sort of stuff. Exactly so we've got power meters we've got TFD screens which obviously hold a whole caliber of information on um, over the EV powertrain aspect of it and something we can communicate with to the driver. And but really trying to keep in keeping with what the original car was about and trying not to veer away from, you know, what it was. And I remember when I first saw the electric E-Type by Jaguar, I thought it was, an, you know, they incredible seeing that drive away from the wedding. But I didn't like the interior of the car and it was a personal choice. You mm-hmm. know, I didn't want to see a huge iPad in the middle of the uh, screen and take away all the beautiful dials and switches that that car was about. And you know, there's different markets. Some do want it modernized. I personally didn't. I wanted to keep what I loved about classic cars and bring that passion through and really further the legacy of what these cars were about and introduce the passion I had to future generations. Yeah, and nothing stands out more than a massive screen just <laughs> bolted That's on it. a car. Whether it's even if a modern, I've got a modern E63 and it's got a massive display and all that sort of stuff. And you're like, it'd be better if this just wasn't there. <laughs> It's. I find it quite funny because obviously we went through obviously the mobile ban in our generation where obviously you shouldn't use a mobile while driving. Yeah. But then we've put huge iPads in cars, which are just a deterrent as a mobile are. And it's acceptable to start using a huge screen. And if anything, I think we've gone slightly the wrong way when you look at the aspect of like keeping drivers focused on the yeah. road. 
And uh, it's not that I'm against modern design of vehicles. You know, there's some incredible vehicles out there. And, uh, but I definitely think we are bending potentially in some aspects the wrong way with how much technology goes in these cars. They're, they're becoming rooms that you wish to sit in and not drive as such. Yeah. And, you know, obviously in the future we are driving towards that. And, uh, but right now you are still driver focused. And a lot of these cars are kind of in my mind, bending away from the focus of the driver. And, uh, it's really interesting seeing all of the new cars come out. It is. It is. And am I right? Do you, I think when I last saw you, you'd ordered a Taycan. Have you got that? Yes, yeah, so I have the Taycan. Um, and uh, i got to say, they've done an incredible job with that car. Very happy with it. However, it's not got the capability of the technology of a Tesla. Yeah. And it's got the luxury finish. And, you know, Porsche always do an outstanding job in my mind. I think it's, you know, they, they really are an outstanding brand. But it it's not communicating with the road taking in information like a tesla does it's not it's not future-proofed as such for where the world is going and i think that's where you see someone like elon musk just in a league of his own of actually the data he's acquiring with one of those vehicles and you know when we when we go for driverless vehicles tesla hold all the data and it's um it's going to be an incredible you know future to witness as such with where these cars go and uh, I love driving. I don't want to drive this car. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's my main thing that I love in life. So uh, I, I think I'm, I'm split. Like, I love driving, but I like fun driving. And, like, if I'm sitting on a motorway for six hours, I would quite like a point where I just sit in the back. That would be yeah. pretty chilled. Um, it's, we're in that weird bit, like you said, where with its whether it's screens and I think a lot of manufacturers realized that they've gone a bit too far. Like uh, I think Audi and, and Porsche, I wouldn't be surprised if like, let's say Taycan Mark II has a bit less displays because mm. you find you're trying to, you're driving along and you're trying to change something and it's actually kind of hard. Like you touch buttons and stuff are not that easy. Absolutely. It's uh it's a deterrent. It's uh, it's yeah. It's one of those things that they should be driver focused on fo- concentration of the driver rather than making it this experience as such while driving. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I got to say they've done an incredible job with the car and for a generation one car, it's oh, yeah. incredible. It, fantastic to see where they're going with it. Yeah. Do you, have you with with your cars? I guess uh, talking to someone else in uh, loosely the space actually. Um, not McMurtry actually. Um, did you see that? Were you kid? Unbelievable! It's, it's uh, <laughs> what, what a rocket! It's uh, I got to say, seeing that good, it was an incredible sight, and really so great for them to really pioneer that and showcase the capability of what they could achieve. And uh, honestly, hats off to them. I thought it was incredible. Yeah, and uh, just fantastic seeing that. It was like a dart, <laughs> I mean, and just mad. And I think mad. that's. That is the shifting point of no longer will a petrol car pretty much from now beat an EV up any sort of hill climb. No chance. uh, And it's really, really hard, you know, for the hypercar brands now because Mm. they've, you know, there's some brands where they've, they've done so well getting to where they are. And some of them are more the niche brands, lower volume, and they've created some incredible hypercars. 
and that line has just been drawn in the sand now. And it's it's not that we're just shifting. It's the EV powertrain is more efficient and better. And it's, you know, for what, and they've just got to shift their entire business model. And it's easier starting with a blank sheet of paper than it is trying to transition from, you know, a product that you had developed to yeah. actually shifting an entire product line. And um, you've got to feel for some of the larger brands as well, where they've been, they haven't been caught off guard. They, they, they didn't pay attention to what was going on as such, and they wanted to run for as long as possible with what they were producing. But now they've got to change every one of their lines. And uh, yeah, it's a really, really interesting pivot point in automotive. And yeah. uh, it's fascinating to witness while uh, being part of it as well. Yeah, and we've seen this huge change. The thing I sort of want to see more of um, is the sort of the phrase ground up EV. Now, we're kind of in that for most manufacturers, but the the bit I sort of take away from that really is I don't want any of the pre-existing architecture or ideas to just linger on because I want someone to go, this is an EV, and we're designing it purely as an EV. It's not going. There's no option to have now. Whether financially that's possible or whatnot, I'm not that interested in, in. But like, I don't want it compromised because it needs to have another powertrain in it. I don't want. Yeah. Like for example, I think new lots of we see lots of cars. I think new Range Rover has this a little bit um, because it has to be hybrid, but also a powertrain. Correct. The rear seats and the floor is slightly higher. Um, just packaging and whatnot and that to me is like well something's gone wrong there you should be prioritizing interior space for your people and if there's a transmission tunnel and it doesn't need technically need to be there it shouldn't be there um, yeah you by the way 100 percent correct and uh i've never actually dived into that thought but with these brands of course and they're, they're going to have to do that as they transition so for the next five to seven years you're going to see Vehicles, sorry, vehicles like this coming out where um, they, they are compromised as such because they're building them across multiple platforms. And, uh, yeah, really interesting because the companies that have started, obviously, with a blank sheet of paper don't have these problems. They are building them as an EV. Yeah. And uh, it's why so many brands are able to come through in a pivot point like this in the industry. And uh, it's great to see so many new players within the space. Yeah, and I think a lot of the new players in in the sort of general, yeah, sort of Tesla, although Tesla is not new anymore and they've been around and they've, they've survived the going through production and making a lot of cars. Whereas a lot of these other companies that have got crazy valuations haven't built the cars yet, which is, is a big distinction. And I know Elon Musk has talked a lot about that was the hardest bit, getting that from point A to point B, 500,000 cars out a year, that is something that existing manufacturers are very good at. They know how to do that, all that stuff. And that is incredibly complicated and takes a long time. Um, with your production, so you have like a proper production line and yeah, you correct. everything goes through the production line. But part of it, at least on, on the ones we're talking about now, is restoring cars, but on a production line. Now, I've not really seen that. You don't really see that. You it, it sort of exists, but not in that process. Elsewhere, um, what have, have there been any sort of particular interesting parts about putting that in? And also, I guess you needed to say, we're going to do 100 cars and we're committing, yeah. we're going to have to sell 100 cars. How, how did that, was that like a chicken egg situation? When did you yeah, have to so commit? On the restoration side, it was really simple. So 
doing a car restoration has a set time as such. You've got a variable within, obviously, the car condition. But once you've done multiple of the same vehicle class, you realize where the faults are in the cars, like the Rolls Royces or Bentleys, always seal replacement as such. And you can start to allocate the time required for, obviously, each specific task, knowing that you've got a 20% variable based on, you know, extra worst condition on the vehicle. But with a lot of restoration companies, and this isn't for all of them, some of them have an incredible efficient line, they don't work on the cars every day. And they're not in allocated bays. They they maybe have 15 cars in the restoration shop with six people working on the cars yeah. and they're picking up tools on one car today, picking up cars on another. And, you know, somehow you then hear that the restoration is taking two years. It's not the case that it takes two years. You know, you can allocate the hours acquired to it. So we've got set bays where cars are in bays. There's hands-on cars every day here. And, uh, you know, it's to keep the car moving through the line as such. And no, knowing that a car is behind it, allows the work to continue and obviously we can't get it exactly correct sometimes you know we're pushing cars backwards and forwards uh, but you're trying to work on cars on a daily basis and uh, the restoration shop i gotta say it's one of my favorite areas of the business to walk into because i still find it outstanding how metal work can be done and mm. you know watching them on the catherine wheel here and watching them actually blend the panels in uh, i i love spending time in that area of this business and uh, that and the trim shop i've got to say uh, it's really nice having all of these, what you'd say, artisans within different crafts and merging all of these people together because there are very few businesses, I believe, where you've got everyone under one roof. So when we yeah. have lunch here in the cafe, you've got you know people from every different um, part of the company all coming together and all such skilled individuals, but talking about their craft and you know it's small things like we've done welding lessons here and you know, people from other areas have come to look at how to weld and try to teach different skill sets and really making a family and fun place to live. Uh, sorry, live and work as such. And uh, really trying to embody what this industry is about and introduce a lot of new people to the industry. So I'm not tied to taking people from Classic Car World uh, to come work on Classic Cars. I'm a big believer in taking uh, younger people in and also training people in the industry. So We've taken people from all different warps and put them into different sections of the business. And it's worked really well. And I've got to say, it's bringing up the talent. It's fantastic. And just seeing the cars go through each level and especially within, as you said, the restoration side, just seeing them come in, strip down, body off. They come in, they get completely blasted. You really understand what you're dealing with at that point. I would say I'm not going to get shocked anymore. I've uh, I've had what I would say the uh, the shock moments in my life where a car comes in and they look like an absolute pristine vehicle. One of them was a concourse winner. It's it's uh, absolutely remarkable what happened with one of these cars. And uh, whoever did the filler on the Rolls-Royce Cloud uh, <laughs> drop head that I'm doing, they have a job here with no interview. It was a, uh, it was a, a masterpiece in itself, I've got to say. It was the most beautiful car, which was the worst restoration I've ever seen done on a car. And... Uh, it's why a lot of people get so worried about this industry because mm. there are the bodge jobs done and there are people doing cover-ups. And there are people, you know, I looked at the bills that were paid on that vehicle for the restoration. It's outstanding. It was, uh, and the owner had no idea what lied beneath. And uh, it's really nice here. So the owners of every vehicle get to come visit the cars whenever they want. The doors are open. They get to see the cars throughout the build, which obviously also pushes us as a team to keep the cars moving forward because we don't know when the clients are coming to see the vehicles in build and everything's open here. There's no closed doors. Uh, As you saw, you can walk around everywhere. You can see from the trim shop to the battery build area, to the wiring harness area, to 
the restoration to the prep areas. It's all open. So it's, uh, we've got to keep the vehicles moving and we've got to keep vehicles going out the door. So, um, no, it's really fascinating. But restoration was one of those areas you straight away I knew we had to take control of in the business because I knew that we couldn't rely on a, another restoration shop to deliver to our timetable yeah. to then obviously be able to deliver the cars. And how long do you say to someone after they order a car? So now we're selling cars for Q2 and 24. Um, and that's just due to the waiting list. Obviously it's not actually taking us that long to build the car, but the cars will come here. They'll start some of the process. Um, and really then you go into the hands of the design studio, which is led by Jen Holloway, who was the ex head of, uh, Q branch Aston doing the bespoke tailoring. And I met her in 2018 and straight away just connected and really asked her, she begged her and kept asking her to come join Lunas. And obviously it was a big shift from where she was. It was a six person company at the time. Yeah. And, uh, she just had an incredible line, an incredible way of taking me through the design process of what we did with the Jaguar. And, um, she leads the design team here. There's now six designers, uh, working with the clients, really trying to deliver people's dreams and work with individuals to show our capability and also deliver a product that we're proud of. So there are some guidelines as such to uh, what can and can't be done, but really people are off the reins. It's, uh, we've only had one car that I've declined to date and, uh, Otherwise, everyone's been able to create exactly what they wanted. And that presumably is a really important part of the process for the clients. Like, they're spending a lot of money. And yes, they get a car at the end of it. But I think for a lot of them, the the sort of choosing it, specking it, the journey part of it is a huge part of that value. Do you think? Uh, Absolutely. So it's the... It's the bit of where you look at other brands where it's a tailored product, this. I mean, it's even to the inside of the glove boxes, to using marble inserts inside armrests where only the owner knows it's there. Mm. And it's, it's getting it to be a real personal vehicle where it's not something you can do with a modern EV. You know, you can't choose the array of products that we have here. And, you know, we recently built a car which was, you know, the brief was he wanted to build it around a sustainable product. We use upcycling fishing nets for carpets. We used disused aluminium on the rears of the seats, and uh, it was a non-leather car as well. And it allowed the design team to really, you know, have fun with the vehicle and work with the client and really deliver on his dream of what he wanted to create as well as what we're proud of to create as a design team. And uh, it was an incredible process for both client and company, to be honest. And it pushes us and drives us forward as well, working with the individuals or, you know, some of the institutions that we're working with now where, you know, hotels around the world, they're trying to, embed some of their design into the vehicles and Mm. you don't want it to be an exact replica, but how can you tie in touches? What materials can you pull over? And uh, it's really beautiful watching that process come forward. And it starts off with, you know, a pitch as such from our team with design concepts, color palettes, and where we feel the vehicle could be after having probably a 20 minute initial engagement conversation with them to see, are there any specific, you know, color palettes that they're thinking. And then we'll always pitch in a couple of wild cards, which are, uh, you know, the team downstairs having a bit of fun and uh, it really diverts people, those wild cars. You know, it's uh, it's really, it's a lovely process. That's it. Because like, if you give me unlimited choices, I'm in a really bad place, like a really bad place. I can have a vague idea, like yeah. loosely, but then I want to go, look, come back with three, three options and then I'll pick that one. I don't want a hundred shades of this particular green or something, like decision paralysis. 
in a, in a big, big, big way. I think when I came around, I guess you probably do it a lot on these cars. You either that car was in build or you were showing me some of the the materials that you're using and the all of that stuff. I think that's quite an interesting side of looking at this from a from the way of you know an EV is probably a lot of the customers are trying to sort of sort of embody some eco-ness but at the same time it's you know they're luxury vehicles they're pricey you want them to be nice and blending those two of coming of coming across these these materials that are actually really interesting really nice have probably have have quite good properties to them better than some natural ones yet also you're recycling stuff upcycling you know upcycling stuff but in doing all of that What's been some of the, are there any particular ones that you've gone, oh, no, that's really cool and other customers particularly love? For me, and it's the one that I incorporate in every car unless specified otherwise, is the carpets we now use are disused fishing nets. And it's a mm. really it's a really simple product. They, it's got an incredible story behind the company. And it's not that I'm using it because it's a disused fishing net. The product is incredible. And it's probably one of the products I may have showed you. And mm. if you feel the two carpets and you feel a traditional wool versus it's it's the materials that what I want in a car, and uh, it's really funny seeing how products are changing. And you know, we're taking a lot of aviation uh, materials and what's in uh, being used in hotels, etc., where it's got the product life that you require from the vehicle. But you're also thinking about a product that probably hasn't been used in automotive before. And uh, it's great to introduce these to vehicles, and um, it's really part of the process. But we also use all the traditional leathers as well. And, you know, it's all about the sourcing of where the leathers are from, using the correct suppliers at this point. And it's a big focus of the design team downstairs. They're, they're really working around that as such and really trying to get the correct products within the cars and introducing the clients to why we use those products and what are the reasons behind it. And uh, it's all part of the shift of where the world is uh, uh, moving towards as such and plays an important role. But what you said earlier about design choices, and I'm the same as you, and having too much choice it's hard and having 30 greens is a tricky decision at this point. So what we did is we created 36 colors, which were unique to Luna's, uh, our own color palette as such, which Jen uh, took lead on. And when every one of those colors is chosen for the first time, the client gets to name the initial color, which then sits on the board and also sits on the international board for being able to buy the paint in any paint store, etc. But what we've then gone and done is we do do bespoke coloring. And people do sometimes go down that journey of, really trying to understand what this color is going to look like. And the hardest part of all of that is going from a plaque to obviously a car and you're looking at a plaque and you're looking at the flop and you're trying to understand what this is going to look like on set lines. So then what we did is we went and created the 3D molds of every vehicle class that we do. So we've got Range Rover molds, we've got uh, Aston molds, we've got the Bentley molds. So that we then do the spray out on the vehicle, whether it's a two-tone color or a one-tone, even with the pinstripes down the side of the vehicle so that someone can view it at least on what you'd say is a foot-long uh, plaque to try and understand what the car is about. We have had a couple of examples where even that didn't suffice. So what we did is we painted a really small section of the car just to show it on the vehicle. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, It's a really hard thing to sign something like this off. And uh, it's why it's much easier choosing one of the 36 colors we have because yeah. we can showcase larger areas that we've sprayed. We can showcase what this vehicle looks like in different lights. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's a really hard choice when you're looking at it on a small plaque to imagine that on a large car, especially if you're doing it for the first time. And so many of our clients, 
this is the first time they've gone through a, you know, a relationship like this of building a vehicle like this. And as I said, a lot of, I can tell they're not from classic car world. They haven't mm -hmm. gone through this process before. And, um, you know, it's a really, it's engaging as such. And, uh, it's a, it's a nice journey, but honestly, there's some people that don't want to go through it. And, uh, we had one individual where we prepped everything for, and, you know, we got absolutely everything ready. The design team had done all the back end work for all the pictures and uh, came to see the factory and just said blue. And uh, that was it. <laughs> there was, there was no other choice. The rest is for us to design. Uh, where he's trusted the design team to do the entire car and uh, didn't even specify what color the interior was going to be and uh, just specified the outer color. So it's, nice. it depends how far you want to take it. And uh, yeah. that really wasn't extreme. It's uh it threw us all off guard slightly, but um, yeah, I think we've all had those, op you know, everyone plays with a configurator, whether it's whatever brand and, and stuff like that. And you go, I think that would look good. And then if I think of some of my friends that have spec'd a lot of cars, like, I don't know, 20 plus or something. And of all varying levels of bespoke, you start off and I think we're all pretty similar. We go, I like this color combination and I'll do, I don't know. Blue, for me, it'd be, it might be blue exterior, tan interior, something like that. And I'm going, yeah, great. But then by the time you get to car number six, you, you're kind of a bit, you've done the blue exterior, tan interior. So you start playing with different stuff. But you never know. And I, I get messages from friends because they, they know I'm like pretty particular about certain things. Mm. And they'll say, what do you think of this? And I'm like, oh, to be honest, like, they're like, we want this seat insert. <laughs> and like, I think it's probably going to be a bit wacky. And you're like, it could be, it could be absolutely mental or it could look really cool. And when you're on that line, it's yeah. so hard. <laughs> so we, we've got a car, which I would say is very close to that line. And uh, it's going to come out maybe in about three months time. And it is, it's a wild car. It's, um, it's got a couple of cars in build with us, building a most beautiful Bentley, which really classic. And then he's got a Range Rover in build, which is a daily vehicle, which is, you know, it's going to be pretty, you know, what you'd say specified to a color that would be a normal And then we've got a, a Safari Range Rover, which is our rooftop Range Rover that we do. And he's gone wild card. <laughs> and it is uh, just, I mean, just the color combination, calling it frog green would probably be enough to anticipate yeah. what that car is. And uh, it's going to be a wild card and really excited to see it. And it's gone close to that line. And it's, uh, but the design team have kept it in a parameter that we're happy and, yeah. It's got to be a car we're proud of. Every one of these cars is, you know, what you'd say a showcase of Lunas and what, what our design capabilities are. So we, it's got to stay within the parameters of what we're proud of, but it's definitely a wild card, which I'm super excited to see. It'll yeah. be a uh, love-hate, I'm sure, for some people. It'll be interesting to see that one. And I, because like with in interior design, it's the same stuff. I, I would never, I'm not very good at that. My wife's much better. And she'll be like, oh, yeah, you should put this chair in that room or this carpet and this change of materials. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then you do it. And you're like, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, that works. Just, just, just do it. Don't ask. <laughs> and that's, that's when you can at least trust. Like if you've got a couple of designers or a, a person you're working with and you go, they make good, if they think it's going to look good, I'm pretty happy and it's probably going to look pretty good. So you're like, here's my yeah. ideas, but like you can refine it and, work out the tiny details and whatnot and then and then i'll come and dive in and see what yeah, that, that that trust element is so important as well so when we when we first started the company and we had all the initial customers coming through i was on top of the design team day in day out i mean it was 
I was probably becoming slightly irritating. I wanted to know everything that was going on with every material. I wanted to basically have overview of absolutely everything because you've got to learn to trust the process. And now there's vehicles in build, which I actually don't even know the color specification. I have to go ask. And I trust that they're going to deliver an incredible product for the company. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's really nice getting to that phase. And, you know, as the team matures and, you know, the team grows, it's really nice transitioning from what you'd say startup to young company as such. And, uh, you do, you, you can take a step back at this point and I know what's going to be delivered from that department is going to be exceptional. And I kind of get excited not knowing what some of the cars yeah. are going to look like, you know, and then seeing some of the stuff come out of the trim shop and it's being the first time for me rather than seeing the palette and seeing the box. It's a really nice surprise. And uh, yeah, I've got to say, I've really enjoyed that over the last kind of nine months, I would say. I've taken a slight step back as such, uh, probably actually 12 months where, I'm not as involved in that process anymore. It's, uh, but it's lovely to see some of the stuff coming through and, you know, seeing, okay, which car is that for? And then almost getting to experience it for the first time. Yeah. There's nothing like seeing something in the flesh for the first time. And it's like a classic one is it's like a new car reveal and the car's coming out and then someone, some pictures, some really crap pictures get posted in various sent around the internet. And you're like, ah, like, yeah, I'm excited to see it, but mm. I'm annoyed that I don't get to just see it properly. In person. Boom. Yeah. You can't, uh, can't do that bit again. No. And it's, we've done a couple of reveals, uh, especially with the cars that we've sent abroad where the client hasn't been able to come to the UK to see the car. And I love showcasing cars here. It's, uh, you know, it really is part of the experience to see the end product and, it's also nice when a customer hasn't been as engaged at the back end of the build where mm. they haven't seen the car for a chapter and then they come and see the car as a finished product. Because if yeah. you're really engaged with um, Aiden, who looks after our client experience here, who used to look after head of client experience at Rolls-Royce, he guides you through it and it's as little or as much communication as you would like to have. And some are super engaged and they know absolutely everything going on with every aspect of that build. So when they come see the car, it's almost like, they know what the car is. Yeah. Whereas some people that haven't been as engaged in that last chapter where the car really comes together, you can really see the shock in their face when they walk into the building and the car's unveiled. And uh, yeah, it's really, it's, I gotta say it's, uh, it's lovely seeing that. Yeah. That's quite cool. I can see behind you, if you've got a few pictures, of some of the various cars with the, um, how have you, how has it been working with, let's say these older, these older cars where, you know, we say tolerances and whatnot are different, but I'd say the Rolls Royces, but removing the noise of a, an engine and then making it EV, has that caused itself some problems? And you've had to like add extra sounds, insulation and adapt stuff from that aspect. Exactly. So it's, it's sound insulation, anti-vibration, under wheel arches, under bonnets, uh, under carpets, working out what materials do work better and what don't. We brought a, could be wrong, it's a telescope mic. It's basically we've got these microphones where we drive inside the vehicle. We then do improvements. We see what the sound uh, of the vibration tests are and sound quality inside the vehicle are. And then we change materials. And that's all part of what I'd say the front-end testing program when we're working with a new development program. And really trying to understand how we can send a car out our door knowing that it's the best car we know how to build today. And, you know, various techniques, 
we've put in and you'll see like in some of the imagery of some of the cars online we do a lot of live stuff on uh, instagram just to showcase what goes on behind our closed doors as such but you really see there's a lot of modern materials being used in the cars where we do want it to be as best experience as you can for the driver but also for example like sound deadening it's very heavy and you've got to factor in the weight as etc of these vehicles so it's that compromise of trying to get the vehicle driving how it needs to drive but also understanding you know it's not a Porsche Taycan. It's a, a Rolls-Royce, but what do people expect from a Rolls-Royce? A dead, quiet, gliding vehicle where they can sit in the back and, you know, and we have to still create that. And, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it's it's uh, been a huge challenge. It's been time-consuming. It's been mm-hmm. a lot of days at Millbrook, and uh, we use Millbrook as the testing uh, grounds, which is located about 20 minutes from Silverstone, where we're based. And it's going back. It's testing the vehicles, and it's, you know, trying to understand – what actually uh, makes a difference and what doesn't. And, uh, you know, even changing panels and not having flat panels within the vehicles uh, on the inner panels, for example, has made a huge difference on these vehicles. And knowing how can we build the best car we know how has been the key to this. And, uh, yeah, I I look forward to having you down here. We'll take one of the cars out. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll definitely, definitely do that. Um, And and I've I've driven all sorts of cars now. And it seems like with, let's say, resto mods, there's like almost two price points. There's, I don't know, you take any car and you sort of restore it, mod it, whatever, kind of costs like, I don't know, 80 grand, 60 grand, something like that to just kind of change some stuff, maybe do a bit, whatever. And then like the next level, which is probably maybe redesigning dashes, interior panels exterior panels it just goes it jumps up to like 500 plus depending on the level Mm. and there is doesn't really seem to be a middle point do you think that is is there any space and everyone always argues or not argues a lot of people are asking for cheaper cars done like a resto mod of a cheap car i don't know like a mx5 or something Mm. but it seems like just the process, if you're taking an older car, restoring it, I think it's sort of been around since day dot that the idea of if you want to restore a car and it'd be worth more money, it needs to be worth a lot of money. <laughs> like basically it needs to be an expensive car that you're yeah. spending a small percentage of to restore it. Otherwise you're never getting that money back. Do you it's think it also, works on a tiny scale? It does not it doesn't. I mean, firstly with the cars, it depends what level you restore a vehicle to. I mean, a body off restoration, it's thousands of hours before you start. So you've you've already got that to account for. And so there isn't a way of getting that down on a price point. So as you rightly said, even some of the lower cost vehicles in this world, if you restore them correctly, it doesn't financially make sense. If you were to do a Fiat, classic Fiat 500, for example, and you want to do a full nut and bolt restoration on the vehicle, it's going to be X amount and it's going to be more than most people would value that car for. But it depends you as an individual what the value of that car is. Yeah. If it's, for example, one of your parents' vehicles and you wanted to retain it in your family, then it's like an art piece as such at this point. It's it's how you view the asset or the car um, with what you believe is the correct amount to spend on that vehicle. And, you know, it's uh, bringing these cars for the future. It's Of course, there's that price comparison point between how you can, what you'd say, retrofit or put an EV powertrain into a vehicle. Some are using the original wiring harnesses and all of the original dials and, you know, getting them to 
just work but not really tailoring it for what an electric car is or just doing a powertrain conversion with used car parts for example from mm. crashed vehicles and you know there, there's space in this market and uh there's different levels at which you can do it and it's you know ours are what you'd say built from the ground up as an ev um thinking about what it requires as an electric vehicle i mean all of our wiring harnesses for example we've got master harnesses on every car everything's stripped out we don't use the old harnesses and the old window motors and you know we've put modern motors in the windows with anti-trap etc for fingers and trying to work out what the car requires as a modern vehicle to further its legacy and uh of course, it completely depends what level you want to take it. And, you know, it's even in the restoration business, you can you can restore a Jaguar E-Type, but, you know, a normal restoration shop, or you can go to Jaguar Eagle, who, you know, I did a factory tour there. They do an exceptional job. You can understand their, why their prices are higher than, you know, the average E-Type restoration because they are looking at everything on that vehicle and doing an exceptional job with it. And, um yeah, it's exactly where we have with Luna's design. It's We haven't held back in anywhere, and I really wanted that to be a showcase of quality as such, to stand behind the Luna's brand overall. Yeah, and then I guess you're, like, amongst the bigger picture, basically, you had bigger plans, and you also have gone, we're going to make, we're not doing this car unless we're doing 100, and we're investing a lot of time and money on the front end, and we have to do 100. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. If we do 10, you know, we're, we're going to have to charge some stupid amount of money and no one's going to want to, want to pay. Correct. That. So when, when we've developed each program, we've put it over volume runs. And, uh, you know, when you, when you look at your R&D payback on each vehicle class, it's got to be over a large volume as such to make it make sense to actually engineer that platform from the ground up. Otherwise, you should just do it without CAD. You should do it without engineers you should just do it by hand if you just wanted to do a quick conversion on a car and you know hope it's there in five years time and still working but to actually get the platform correct it takes time and you know we've wanted to do it so that we could stand by the product and really lead us into Luna's applied technologies which is obviously the wider aspect of the business in the commercial vehicle front where uh, you know we're playing the same process as such we're restoring vehicles that already exist you know Luna's will not build new vehicles I will stand by that I have no interest in building new vehicles. I have interest in the 2 billion vehicles that already exist. And we started, obviously, with the classics. And I nearly didn't. I nearly started it with a refuse truck. It's, uh, <laughs> the reason I nearly started with a refuse truck is John Hilton had already put hybrid systems onto refuse trucks. He knew a lot about it. And uh, I had had it on my business plan. So when I first met him, we were laughing over this refuse truck box that I had. And uh, the reason I had it on there is I live in London and... Uh, you know, hearing these things go past my house every day, watching their engines still on, I just thought, why are they not electric? Like, it's the perfect vehicle where it's got all the specialist equipment on it. You don't need to replace the bin, the uh, mechanisms. You, you know, you can get REPTO to work with the uh, hydraulics and convert these vehicles to EV. And what we've done is we've set out with Lunas Design because I wanted the marketing piece for what was going to be behind Lunas. Mm. And I thought we'd be a black hole of R&D if we'd launched with a refuse truck. How do you come to market? It's not what you'd call a sexy product. Yeah. And luckily, my passion was around classics, and it's a beautiful product that I knew would get the attention uh, of the press and be able to launch the brand. So launching the first electric Rolls-Royce, as soon as we did that, we then started the program of Lunar Supply Technologies, which was the commercial vehicles. And really nice. We've come to market recently with our first electric refuse trucks and just uh, in build with the next factory at the moment, which is, as I said, six times larger than this 150,000, 160,000 square foot base build. 
and um, just in the process of taking the next factory, uh, which will be for next year. And uh, yeah, it's all all systems go as such and really want to make an impact with the process we've built here, which is to re-engineer vehicles that already exist and showcase how it can be used in multiple vehicle platforms, you know, whether it's airport vehicles, refuse trucks, fire engines, looking at specialist vehicle classes where value can be carried over on these vehicles and uh, you can reproduce the product that already exists to clean air emissions. And I guess uh, at the moment, EV versions of all of these things aren't commercially available from the, your conventional manufacturers. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so there's, they're starting to come out. And what I'm really competing with here is I do not want to be known as a used car brand or yeah. a used car commercial vehicle. So when you look at our classics, I've really tried to bring them to what you'd say, you know, while they are brand new as such and they're warranted as new. And I'm doing the same with the commercial vehicles. So we've looked at the specification of every new vehicle on the market and we've gone above and beyond on our vehicles. And, you know, from passenger uh, pedestrian detection for 360 cameras on the refuse trucks to uh, all sorts of mod cons that aren't naturally installed on what's coming out in 23, 24, mm. 25, we've incorporated into our vehicles and really got some of the largest fleet operators in the UK to work with us on specking these vehicles and actually working around their requirements, especially with the councils as well, and looking at duty cycles of these vehicles and small things like we've done a we do five battery pack sizes on one vehicle class, whereas most vehicles are coming out with one battery pack size okay. because, you know, going through a Mercedes factory, of course you build a one size fits all. And you put a matrix together looking at your end user and you say some do 40, some do 200 miles. Where do we want to be on that matrix? We want to tailor the product for the end user. So because there's no point of carrying excess weight, excess cost of batteries if your vehicle's on a duty cycle that does 35 miles a day. And then you start looking into the end user and which operators do which mileage, incline, decline, efficiency and usage and really tailor the vehicles for their requirement. And it's fascinating. You've got two very different businesses, but with the same core value yeah. where it's upcycling the product. And even when uh, some of the meetings, they come and see Luna's design, it really shows that if we can do this with a 1960 vehicle, of course you can do it with a 2016 vehicle. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, it's these vehicles have done 60,000 miles. Of course, they need to be brought forward. And it's a really... Now that I've dived into it, it's just a logical business, Lunas, and uh, it's it's a great journey that it's uh, accelerating quickly. Yeah, I remember you you had one in the trucks. I don't know whether I think it was like a test bed for when I came around, whenever that was a year ago, two years ago. And um, like, how much does a normal refuse truck cost from a manufacturer? 
So on a diesel uh, today, but really I've kind of stopped the comparison with diesel yeah. because the transition now is, you know, that there's a hard line and they're having to transition fleets. So when you look at the new EV alternatives, they're coming in considerably more expensive than what we're completely re-engineering, restoring these vehicles to. And when I say we bring them back to warranty as new, we completely strip them down like a classic car. Every nut and bolt comes off, new hydraulics, new suspension, new brakes, upcycling the calipers, however, uh, not replacing calipers and looking at how much of that vehicle can we carry forward? How much of it can we upcycle to condition as new? And we carry over, we just did an independent study actually with a, another engineering company. We take 82% of the embedded carbon uh, on a vehicle carried over, which is incredible. And, you know, we haven't really gone to market with these things yet because I think we're probably a bit early to be really trying to push down that embedded carbon route. It's coming. Mm-hmm. It's the next wave. Um but when you look at these various vehicle classes and you understand that we're going to transition to EV, and when you next go to an airport, look at every one of those airport vehicles and tell me yeah. we're going to replace every one of those with a new vehicle. A tow tug, for example, they're one and a half inch thick still because they need to be weighed down. I mean, you don't, what, what's wrong with these vehicles? You've got to shop blast them, you've got to restore them, you've got to repaint them, you've got to redo the interior, put all mod cons in, bring it up to the standard of what a 2022 vehicle needs to require and let it come off the end of the line. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud that we've got what you'd say the largest upcycling vehicle campus in the world, actually. And it's at the heart of Silverstone and we've got to keep it growing and uh, really showcase how you can upcycle a vehicle to EV powertrain without compromising the vehicle and without it being a used compromise to the end user and delivering a product that still is as feasible as what they're going to be buying as a new uh, EV alternative. Yeah, and that's it. I think... A lot of people with their sort of personal cars go, oh, I've got a perfectly good car. I bought it a year ago, two years ago, or, or however old, but you know, it works. It does all the stuff, but I'm going to be forced to have an EV or might not be forced, but you know, eventually going to be forced to have an EV. What's the option? And on, you know, whatever your normal, like you've got an Audi estate or something, it doesn't really make sense to strip out, strip it out, do a full restoration for the reasons we've talked to you earlier. But, you know, these, these commercial vehicles, they're so expensive to start off with, even the diesel ones. Like, how, how, what, I know you're saying you're not comparing them, but what, how much does a diesel yeah, refuge so truck cost? A, a diesel one's between like circa 240, 260,000 once specced up. And what you won't believe is with 70,000 miles on the clock, and remember these were tried and tested by the OEM for half a million miles, mm. 700,000 miles uh, in some cases. They've done 70,000 miles and especially even a Euro 5, you buy them for £8,000. Madness. And it's yeah. because right now we're in this horrible cycle, which no one's really uncovered, where we've gone from Euro 5 to Euro 6 spec vehicles. They've come to the end of the line. And what's worse is we don't, we don't decommission vehicles. What we do is we send them to less privileged countries around the world. And as we transition to EV, yeah, if everyone insane. starts building only, if everyone only buys a new fleet of, uh, call it electric, uh, Econics that we've built, and their old Econics end up in a less privileged country, sweating longer hours, producing more emissions. All we're going to do is push the emissions crisis around the world and not actually solve what we're trying to solve by moving to clean air tailboat. So it's a, it's a, once you dive into this industry and you understand the dynamic of it, you realize that you've got to drive it forward and get volume to actually have impact and make change. And uh, changing that replace with new cycle is the key and at the heart of what Lunas is about. And we've got into that replace with new cycle because of lease agreements or because of yeah. uh, vehicles in tender and they come to the end of their life. And I remember, 
you know, maybe eight years ago, I remember getting an iPhone or whatever phone I had at the time, a Nokia, every 12 months. It was in a contract. Yeah. Every 12 months, you got this message saying, you can have an upgrade. And I don't upgrade my iPhone every year now. It's, you know, I think I'm on the iPhone. I don't even know which iPhone it is, but it's definitely it's, not the it's newest It's changed one. a lot, hasn't it? In the and, last 10 years, that has changed significantly. And I think most people probably are in a similar view because the tech starts, is not as vol- evolving as fast. It's not that. It's also, you know, I've worked out that it's better to purchase my phone and then, you know, not get locked into their contract yeah. as such. And I've got a SIM only deal on my contract. And it's, uh, this happened with lease agreements. And, you know, we were rotating cars after three years or in commercial vehicles, seven years, when they hadn't come to the end of their product life. And you're handing a car over, which is still perfectly adequate or a commercial vehicle, perfectly adequate for what the job entails. Yet you thought, okay, it's, I need a new car now. And I think everyone's kind of probably taking a step back or that transition is now starting where people are realizing that you can extend product life or you can extend usage of things that you have. And uh, I think the whole dynamic of the industry is going to change very rapidly as people realize that. And they also realize that mileage isn't necessarily the quantum you should be looking at. I mean, for example, on a car, we looked at mileage, yet we didn't look at how long the engine was running for. Realistically, mm-hmm. it's how long the engines run for, especially if you live in London and, and you drive cold. low mileage. And you drive low mileage. We, we've been looking at the wrong parameters to actually engine condition, for example. And I think Tesla's yeah. really proven a whole different strategy where, you know, that powertrain is very efficient. There's far less moving components in uh, EV powertrain than obviously an IC or conventional uh, diesel. And you can run these vehicles for longer. And a Tesla that's 60,000 miles or 80,000 miles or 100,000 miles, they're very similar price points. They're not really depreciating yeah. like a normal asset because the interior is of same condition. And, you know, how we view these products, I think, is going to change drastically over time and uh, really want to be on that journey and uh, really showcase actually how you can upcycle. And I saw recently, actually, which was a nice step forward for one of the OEMs, uh, Renault released that they're building a factory for upcycling petrol vehicles. And uh, yeah. I don't know too much about the story. I read it in the press, and uh, but it was incredible to see some of the larger players within this space also see the power of upcycling vehicle and extending product life. That's not for an electric vehicle base. That's just to keep their vehicles on the road that are currently there. They're re-looking at door cards and bits that are breaking and seals. And what you realize is a lot of these components on these vehicles, they were kind of there to break as such. It's like when you look at some of the commercial vehicles, we change a lot of the components they were built with. Like where you've got rubber bushes, which are wearing out after six years, we change them to brass. Like, why would you have them as rubber? Like, of course, they're going to perish as such. And uh, really looking at how we can fine tune these vehicles to extend their product life. And I think other brands are going to have to look at this. And if they don't, they should be looking at this because I think it's everyone's duty to look at the product they've already produced as well as just ramping up to producing more of the new category. And uh, yeah, we, we do have 2 billion vehicles on this planet that we need to address. Uh, yeah. in one way shape or form it's it's an interesting one that one because and your thing about renault and i, I think as if, i think i feel like toyota is looking at it as well um but it's I, I i think we've gone through a drastic change in let's say technology and we're gonna you know it's gonna continue for the next god knows forever um but 20 years ago cars didn't have that much stuff in them they're not f- too different from now but from like a tech point of view you had to buy the s-class to get the whatever you know you want aircon, you want electric this electric that 
Now cars have got adaptive cruise control and whatever, and they're not going to change to fully autonomous because that's a different car. It's not the same thing. You can't just change it like that. Um, so I think a lot of people now with a modern car feel like they've got a really good car that does. Even you, you go and buy a cheap car, you, know, you spend, let's say, 20, 30 grand on a Toyota or something. It's got adaptive cruise control, which like it's got all this tech stuff that you used mm. to spend loads of money on. And the idea that you could send a car back after three years, five years, seven years and get the the refresh or like the the kind of almost like the update, but you're just, it's going back and it's having all that stuff done without having to build an entirely new car and also cost less, like I think is, is, is really appealing to me. If it's not worn out, I just want a bit of a light refresh and I'm yeah, happy to pay for that. And that was really proven by Tesla over the updates, changing mm. the dynamic of your car, changing the speed of the car, changing the range of the vehicle without you even going yeah. to a garage. And it's, you know, that is part of this new transition. And it's, they are computers, not, you know, historic vehicles. And it's funny when you actually dive into one of IC engineers, you can understand why we're shifting to EV and it's a, it's a much more efficient platform and, you're right. I think we will extend product life. I think people will get used to cars being having everything you require. And by way of update, it adds new features to the vehicle. So you're almost engaged in own ownership because, you know, you've got a new feature, which you didn't know. And it just got in, in boarded onto the vehicle with an over the air update as such. And uh, I think it makes it super engaging. And I think people are also going to get less, you know, the whole range anxiety thing, which, by the way, I had as well. When I, when I first started this company, I yeah. wanted I built our first Rolls Royce with a 120 kilowatt battery, the largest battery pack of any passenger vehicle as such, because I was so concerned about range that it needed to be able to drive to Heathrow and back, and hotels would have to drive it left, right, center. All, then you realize that you can't actually drive that duty cycle in a day, and of course you're going to charge the vehicle at night. And that also changes in one's mind. And uh, you know, you go from thinking you need a larger extended range than what's currently on the market. I personally never drive more than 300 miles in a day. I've done yeah. it once. Uh, I drove to Scotland uh, in the UK, and I'm not a big driver. I drive between my office, home. I drive 100, 150 miles type kind of duty cycle. Yeah. I charge every day at my office or at home, and luckily I can charge at home, and that makes a real big difference to EV user ownership. And then you realize that you don't need a bigger battery. Why would I want the extra weight on the vehicle? Or why would mm. I want the extra cost associated to a larger battery pack? And uh, I think that shift will really happen as, you know, ownership takes place with EVs. And it's it's funny. Once you do drive EVs, you lose a lot of those uh, fears that you had about transitioning. And even the sound, you know, it's uh, everyone's loved loud cars. Everyone's loved powerful machines. And I know you've had some incredible cars where, you know, the focus is on the driver. And, uh but the focus is still on the driver with an EV powertrain. You know, even, for example, the Taycan. And we used to put sound generation. Our first Jack had a little sound generation box. Yeah. Actually, interesting. It's just a Miltech do this uh, exhaust system, which is a speaker, basically. Yeah. And it's got a tailpipe and everything. And it's uh, it's got this Miltech speaker. And uh, you can make it sound like, you know, the original car. Or you can make it sound like uh, a spacecraft if you want. And it was pretty synthetic. And I didn't. It wasn't something I liked on the Jag, but I did it because I was so concerned that when I got in the car with someone, they would say, I love this, but I, I miss the sound of the vehicle. Yeah. And you could flick the button and hear the thing uh, with noise. And I just realized that you end up 
really not really missing it. And it becomes part of the driver experience, having it silent. And uh, yeah, that, that, that transition really happened with myself and others. And uh, no, really excited for where the future holds on the EV side. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting space moving forwards. One of the things with, and this is something I talked about with Thomas from McMurtry, is, is the tech is evolving so fast. Have you found that quite tricky designing cars? I guess, uh, you know, with that, that, you know, in three years time, we could be solid state or that. So how are you evolving with that? The sort of restrictions of yeah, that? So the tech's advancing, but it's where it needs to advance to for someone not needing it to advance any further, especially with the classics, for example, and what we're doing in the refuse trucks. We're not trying to push the boundaries of performance with these cars Firstly, it's dangerous. It's, you know, we detalk our cars. We map them to where we think is a sensible approach for the end user. We don't go to the full capacity of what our powertrain is capable of, especially, for example, you know, in the Jags, the twin motors, 375 horsepower equivalent with 700 newton meters of torque. We don't allow that to come out at the tire. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, yes, there could be an advancement in areas like the motors, but does it affect Lunas and where it is today? No, because we're not trying to get up Goodwood Hill with a rocket. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and especially even with the battery and capacity size, you realize, okay, you may be able to get the same range with slightly less weight, but we don't actually need further range on our vehicles. It's not a requirement as such for the end user. So it's, it's what you want from the product, and especially with the industrial vehicle side of the business, I'm addicted to vehicles where we understand duty cycle, port mm. vehicles, airport vehicles, uh, refuse trucks, where they're doing the same thing day in, day out. So naturally, you're building for a set requirement, and you're not trying to push the boundaries of, can we get it to 300-mile range? Our vehicles don't need anywhere near 300-mile range on the industrial vehicle side. And it's uh, it's building for a requirement where we're not having to be right at the front end. That, you know, From day one, we went for the highest spec components that we could, so... It was all tier one source. We used OEM cells, OEM motors, et cetera. And that really was a, you know, part of having John Hilton involved with this company was bringing that, you know, network of individuals that he had and putting the engineering team here together that could really advance us to getting the right tier one components as such. And, you know, we picked Axel Flux Motors, for example, in 2018 when, you know, they were coming through and it was, it was to pick the highest level of components that would have last but you know, in 10 years, if you wanted to a motor change or a battery pack upgrade, of course, the vehicle can come back. We'll upgrade the vehicle and keep it advancing with times. But as you said, we're getting to a point with technology where it's so advanced. How big are those steps going to be now? You yeah. know, how much quicker can a car be? And if they are, if they do get any quicker, firstly, they shouldn't be road legal because already they're at a point now where for the average driver, a 2.5 second car, not 60, yeah. it's... What are you going to do? Put it into a bullet second? Like it's it's Especially, got to get to a point where they can't really they can't really get much more performance out of these vehicles. Or they can, it's, but I think we've got the point now where the one I, whenever someone tells me no, 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 okay, no one actually sits me down and goes like, "Here's the performance figures of a latest hypercar or something." Um, but you go, okay, but you could get a Tesla Model X <laughs> Plaid. It's faster than it? It's hysterical. It's seven like, people it's, sitting in it with their luggage. <laughs> it's it's literally it is. I gotta say, what how Elon Musk came on into this industry and how he drove that Ford. It's remarkable. And uh, 
hats off to what they've created. It's unbelievable. And to showcase what they can do with that seven seat, that's correct. It's, it's hysterical. And it, it's wiped out the whole performance element of a hypercar. Yeah. Because you're right. You know, the people wagging next to you with the four kids in it, it's got yeah. the same, same speed. It's, uh, it's just transitioned the industry so much. And, uh, yeah, it's again, how much quicker can these cars get? It's got to a point where, you know, safety wise, it's got to kick in. You can't, you can't allow a car to go much quicker than this. It's, they're already at what you'd say as Tesla say ludicrous mode. Yeah. And, uh, and they are, they're ludicrously really quick. And uh, especially if you're on a public road. Yeah, I did a, um, a podcast with a, a guy called Colin Hode, who works at Millbrook, actually, cat driver training. And he was saying they train engineers as well to, uh, to sort of like development drivers. And he was saying what they now have to do, whereas previously, if you were a development driver driving a sort of family vehicle, you would have to have like a certain level of skill and requirement, but like not crazy. Whereas now all of these cars are have so much more performance and they weigh so much more that they have to train all of their development drivers to a much higher level, mm. sort of similar level to where sports cars were because they're dealing with things that can do so much more um, and you know weigh so much more and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of crazy. With the, uh, the commercial vehicles and stuff, how a sort of efficient... Actually, all of them, actually. The sort of classic stuff, maybe like a Phantom or one of the Range Rovers. Where does the efficiency sit? What what sort of like miles per kilowatt? And then also, where does that look at? What does that look like in truck form? Yeah, so ranging between the cars, we've got an incredible efficiency. And it's something that i got to say John is addicted to. So we range, and this ranges from obviously the Phantom, which is not your aerodynamic vehicle, yeah. uh, at 2.3 to 3. One uh, kilowatts per mile, as such. Which, when you compare that to the likes of even the, you know, what the new EVs are producing, it's very, yeah. very similar efficiency levels. And it's we have sm- less systems on the vehicle draining from the power. It's even the use of a gearbox, for example, you're losing right. efficiency through the gearbox. And we've gone single speed with the vehicles. And John is absolutely addicted to the micro detail and the macro of the efficiency side of the powertrain. And it's one side that I haven't been able to. St- he just focuses on it, and yeah. it's a great trait for us to have, and it's great that we can prove out our powertrain and the efficiency side of it. And at that point, you realize that you, you're now talking about the fraction of a percent to improve the efficiency level to where we would like it to be. But he's looking at everything, and it's even small things like how you how you dispose of the hot water. Can you create that into the cabin in the industrial vehicles? Yeah. And looking at all excess, where you can use it, uh, to make the most efficient powertrain. And it really is the philosophy behind the whole engineering team here. And sometimes you've got to pull people back because they want to do a whole redesign based on how we can reallocate the energy storage against uh, the product. And But it really is amazing seeing that progress. And obviously, it's a very different company to where it was four years ago. And uh, yeah. you saw that when you walk into that room of 62 yeah, yeah. engineers. It's kind of like they're all on their CAD screens, all designing around the parameters as such. And uh, yeah, it's... There's a lot that can be taken from areas within the powertrain and energy put to other uses. And uh, it's fascinating what you can do. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how far this changes in, like I've got a Peugeot E208. And I, if that could be, I don't think we'll get there, but let's just say twice as efficient or another 50% or 20% efficient, you could have a much smaller battery, 
all have the same battery, but a much bigger range. And it doesn't have a massive battery anyway. Um, and then everything just works better. You can yeah, charge then, it in the same time, but go further. All that absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. And what, one of our biggest advancements actually on the efficiency side was, so we were on twin motors as well as single. And on the twin motor, now when you're cruising at 70, we switch off one of the motors. We oh, end okay. up, we drive on single motor, makes the uh, vehicle more efficient, obviously at cruising speeds as such. And we've said motorway speeds are variable between uh, parameters. And that's where if you're not requesting a torque, we switch off one motor. And that's where being in control of the entire platform, you know, doing all the software development in-house allows us to, you know, keep advancing that forward. And we will keep advancing these cars forward. And as you do with over-the-air updates, we'll be updating the cars uh, on a yearly basis where you will get new and improved features. And the car you buy today will get an increased range next year. And uh, without us actually changing a component, but more working around, you know, the software and actually continuing to strive forward on that side of the business. Yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. And how big a battery pack is in, you know, one of these trucks? I guess it varies, but what sizes do you go from to and kind of how yeah, far so would that go? We, we range from 140 kilowatt, uh, which is honestly a pretty small routing, uh, up to 400 kilowatts or 412 to be exact. Um, and they, they vary in five different sizes as such. And it's a modular system where you can change the battery pack in we timed it in 14 minutes. Realistically, you'd say 20 minutes. We were kind of doing a pit stop on uh, yeah. you know, how quickly you could change one of the batteries. But within a 20-minute process, so if as a fleet operator you were running a vehicle with three battery packs, you needed a fourth, you can have a fourth that you can put in. And uh, within 20 minutes, you can extend the range uh, of the duty cycle of that vehicle. And carrying over that whole modularity of what we started with four years ago is really been the key to the entire business and uh, especially on the industrial side how can it be scaled up and down at ease and how can uh, you know a spot hire company for example change its routing because some of these vehicles are in set routes some of them are spot hired mm. into different routes and how as an operator can they transition that vehicle into different uh, fleets yeah that's quite interesting and i remember seeing this stripped down truck and it kind of looks like almost like lego technic underneath there's loads of mounting places, holes, everything. It's a completely different to a sort of normal thing. So I imagine doing this stuff is so much easier on one of those. Like, not necessarily easy, but easier. You're not trying to package into tiny places and things. Yeah, so much easier in one sense. And then you've got to look at how vigorous the workhorse is. That's a workhorse. It can't have downtime. Downtime is mm. the most cost, you know, is a huge cost to the fleet operator. And these vehicles are driving 300 days a year, 200 lifts a day are going across that. It's a workhorse. Your bins aren't collected. It's a disaster. And so there's a case of what you have to do at the front end of the testing element to make sure that vehicle is validated and signed off, where there's suddenly so much more work than you would do uh, with a normal, you know, classic program as such. And, um, yeah, really it's the validation of the vehicle. But you're right. When you look at the mounting points on the uh, Econic chassis, for example, it's just got drilled holes absolutely everywhere, which makes a really great chassis for us to work with. But, um, you know, there's various different platforms that we're looking at at the moment where everyone carries their own characteristics and everyone carries their own design challenges as such. And um, and every vehicle is used very differently. And, uh, you know, I've got no boundaries to how many vehicle classes I want to do. At the moment, the list is pretty vast, but I'm trying to tailor in the focus as such to showcasing where we could do maybe fewer marks or fewer uh, lines within the production facility, but have the volume within each vehicle class. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I know companies like uh, or JCB specifically are looking at uh, running hydrogen on their diggers and whatnot and stuff like that. Are you worried that we might have a mass shift to hydrogen? <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, funny. I was at uh, Lord Bamford's house maybe earlier this year, and we were discussing, obviously, JCB's plans, and I was discussing what we were doing with Lunas. And, you know, it, it, they're very focused on hydrogen, and they've never really looked at any alternative. And I have looked at alternatives. I mean, I would say Lunas is power source and energy source agnostic. You know, as we transition uh, long-term and look 25 years in advance, we're not just tied to one platform. You know, it's an mm. engineering company as such that will work with multiple fuel sources. But for today, looking at the duty cycles of the vehicles we cater for, EV is the perfect application. And with JCB, they're doing an incredible amount of uh, investment and pioneering into that hydrogen sector. But also not all of their vehicle classes are the perfect application for hydrogen. Yeah. And some of them are. And it's kind of which vehicle classes and which vehicles are correct for which application is more the key than a one-size-fits-all approach as such. And, uh, no, I think, uh, you know, you've seen some of the trucks coming through and they've got hydrogen fuel cell extenders on. It's, honestly, it sounds like a, a larger process than it is. It's a, you know, it's a fuel cell that gets connected onto the power pack. I was going to build one of the prototypes with one just to showcase the capability that we mm. could do it, but decided not to because my focus purely right now is on the vehicles we're building or the duty cycles we're building, and I don't want to confuse the situation of what we're actually selling as such. But no, it's uh, you know there's going to be it's not going to be just EV as we transition to fast forward twenty years. There's going to be a whole different array of different sources, and uh, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how the landscape plays out. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, long yeah. long haul, for example, it's a better application being hydrogen. Yeah. You know, it's um, than an EV space, and uh, yeah, it's really interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I think that's it. It needs to be. I don't know whether the government is particularly helpful in this, but like each application has a best case for it. Correct. We may not yeah. know what that is yet, but we can work on it and engineer it and, and do that. Like if you're only driving 10 miles a day on a little loop, small battery, happy days. It's not even that. It's not even that. It's the, so everyone's suddenly panicked and they've gone, we need superchargers. They're 15,000 pound an install. How at our depot are we going to have 40 superchargers? Hmm. And then what we do with every operator is we dive into their fleet. We put data loggers on all their vehicles. We try start to map out actually what their fleet is doing. Even though they have a lot of this information, we want to look at it ourselves as well so that we can give clear, clean decision on actually what we recommend with the fleet. Then you start looking at, for example, some of these vehicles are finishing work at 4 o'clock, going back out at 6 in the morning. Great. You've got a really good charge time there. And why would you supercharge the battery? If you supercharge mm. the battery, firstly, you're going to degrade the battery quicker. You're not going to have a, as efficient battery pushing forward for its product life. You're also going to have to employ someone in the middle of the night to start moving the lorries around when yeah. currently every one of them sits in a correct space where you could put a 22 kilowatt charger on these vehicles and have the right charge time to actually bring that vehicle up to te- like the correct capacity. And it's, uh, it's really understanding working with each uh, owner and operator and it's, again even with the installation of car chargers you know some uh, people have requested you know for me i think the three uh, 22 kilowatt charger it's a great home install to have um if you have three phase but if you don't seven kilowatts and you're not driving the car throughout the evening you are still getting a full charge by the time you wake up yeah you know you don't actually require a 22 kilowatt charger and uh, it's really trying to get people's perception over 
what they do require and don't require correct. And uh, really with the operators, especially with the government authorities, they were really panicking over the whole supercharger installations and how are they going to do it with the power grid? What yeah. substations are they going to have to put in? It's kind of easy to know that you don't need to do a lot of this. And uh, everyone just needs to be correctly advised and actually look at what applications are they going to have within each vehicle. Yeah, that's super important because I, when I got my EV, um, the place I'm renting at the moment had a charger on the front. Uh, I think it's a seven and, um, I never use it ever. I always just plug into a three pin because actually location wise, it's easier. Um, and I'm never, I never need to charge it. The, my car's got a 46 kilowatt hour battery or something. Mm. And unless I was doing, and I don't a hundred and 70 miles a day, back to back, back to back. And I do not do that. Then it's always, I plug it in and it's always charged up when I need it. So and you realize that you always no basically leave your house with full and you're never, you're yeah. never charging from empty to full. I've, I've never got down to zero. So it's, you know, I'm never actually <laughs> charging the full charge time. So when you think about your charge time, it's only actually what you need to top up to full. And, uh, you do forget before you enter driving an electric car that, if you can charge at home and you have that luxury, which is fantastic to have with an EV, you leave every day with a full battery. Which is and nice. It's, uh, and it's lovely. And as long as you're not extending the range over that, there's never a need to charge. And it's, uh, yes, and my charge times are normally two, three hours. I've got a seven kilowatt at home as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I'm normally needing about 20 kilowatts of charge based on what I normally yeah. drive uh, on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of hours. And, uh, I don't need a, any any quicker because I do sleep sometimes and uh, <laughs> you know, it can charge while I'm sleeping. That is a very nice thing about EVs is it can charge. Now, with a petrol engine, it takes a few minutes to fill up. So fine. And that is, it's actually, now that I've owned an EV for quite a while and I whenever I get in one of the petrol cars, I'm always like, oh shit, I <laughs> might have to go to pet- I've got to go fill up. Um, and it's a pretty me- like smelly experience. Petrol stations are okay, but not the nicest necessary yeah. place to hang out. Um, but you very quickly learn how far you actually drive. Yeah, and exactly. Are you okay with that? And okay, I'm a hundred percent in the position where I've got multiple vehicles. So if I need to do a really, I've got to go into Scotland this week, and I'm not taking REV because I'm. Uh, uh, that would actually be pretty awful. I think it would be okay. You could do it, but the range and whatnot for our journey doesn't work. But for me to then transition to most of my, I'm either round town ish short journeys or something like a Silverstone and back. i always seem to be around the hour and a half, one direction, hour and a half back, maybe two hours max and then back. So for me, if I could get a reliable, 300 miles plenty then that would be plenty and actually probably what that would allow me to do is rather than being worried and driving at 68 miles an hour i could drive Mm. a bit faster that i might do in my combustion car and you know that you're going to get home and it's fine but as soon as i get to that point i'm basically self-sufficient i'm not relying on a network which you're kind of a little bit worried about at the moment Mm. um but then if you weren't worried about the network or if everywhere you went had charging, like if I came to visit you, I only need to do the distance from here to you and then I can plug yeah. in and then it'll charge in, charge up for the two hours, whatever that I'm there or at the track or doing, and then it's fine on the way home. 
but I think a lot and the, of and the network improvement that transition are, point. are drastically changing. I mean, there's there's just so many companies setting up great charging, you know, platforms where they're going to be, you know, whole campuses, and you know, you're going to yeah. see a lot of fuel stations. They're going to change and they're going to transition to EV charge stations only because. You know, naturally, as the shelf life of petrol is reasonably short within a fuel filling station and capacity goes down, you are going to see petrol stations close. And it's uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. And uh, I know there's a lot of new forecourts coming out. And I went to one the other day where it was incredible. There's everything there. There was coffee shops. And I actually stopped in not to charge, but it's uh, just for coffee, a brain tree. And yeah. uh, it was amazing seeing what they've created there. And I think there's just going to be more and more uh, setups like this, which then ease the pressure of long distances. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, if you do suit, obviously the mileage of the vehicle, it's perfect. And I, I think then, you know, the whole, as you fast forward, subscription side of actually car ownership starts to come in and you'll start to drive a car that probably you don't own and yeah. you have a smaller car for your day-to-day stuff. And then when you have a larger distance, you'll take a larger car with, if you need kids in the back, et cetera. And uh, I think that subscription-based side of ownership of vehicles will come in. And, you know, with a lot of people, I'm, I'm a driver. I love driving. So it's not really, you know, aimed at someone like myself. But, and I love getting the dynamic of a car and getting used to it. But for a lot of people, a car is an A to B, you know, yeah. piece of equipment. And I think uh, at that point, having choice over cars and what you can and can't drive at set times and having smaller cars that are more efficient at set times will come in and uh, it will change the whole landscape of the industry. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I, I don't know whether you've got this at the moment. What with a small child, whenever we're doing long distances, we have to stop. And actually, I've got the same problem. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to stop at a petrol station. That's yeah. not a nice place to hang out. So we often stop at you know some sort of park, national trust, whatever, for like an hour, hang out. He can have some food or whatnot, and then we carry on. And actually, I noticed the other day that one of the places we stopped had charges. So we're, we're going to these places and we're stopping for an hour, hour and a half. If, you, if I could plug in whenever I stop anywhere and then just, you know, scan a card or whatever, then, then it suddenly gets very easy to do an EV exactly. lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. And then, then you realize that you can do them for the real long distance trips mm. as well. And, and that's, the, that's your only barrier right now probably with, you know, your vehicle right now is it's your long distances. You know, all your short distances, you don't even think about anymore. Yeah. You're not worried about charging where you're going. You know you're going to charge when you get back home. And uh, on the long distance side, yeah. And you start to incorporate that in. And if you can stop over and uh, burn off some energy with the little ones, fantastic. Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. Uh, having too much energy in the, in the back seat is not fun either. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Duracell burning around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Well, I normally wrap these up with five questions. Are you ready? Let's hear them. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Most memorable driving journey was the first time I drove our Jaguar XK120. You know, it was a long development program. I'd really held off driving other electric vehicles and the excitement over driving it. And I wasn't even the first one to drive it. So obviously I wanted John to do a technical sign-off on the vehicle. I wanted him to be comfortable with it. And I'd seen this car driving and I hadn't been able to actually get in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I also then refused to be a passenger in the vehicle. So while John was doing the development, uh, driving on the vehicle, I said, I don't want to actually experience the car till the first day I can actually get behind the wheel and drive yeah. it. And driving it out of our factory, I'm rarely brought to an emotional stance and stop. But honestly, I had a tear come down my face. It was such a, 
it was such a push and slog to get to that point as such. And we were working long hours around the clock to get there. That getting in that Jaguar and experiencing that is something I remember for the rest of my life. That's for sure. Yeah, that's must have been super cool. That's a really interesting sort of point that about not driving it until it's finished. I think I've driven an EV recently that I had some questions about. They'd just done things that were a bit odd. There's some decisions that were just a bit odd. And I asked them about it and they were like, oh yeah, yeah, but because of this and because of that. I'm like, no, the only reason you're, you've done that is you've gotten it along the way and you've gone, oh, we've had this issue, so this is the solution and this is the solution. If you skip all of that and just get in, you see it fresh and you yeah. go, that's wrong or annoying because of this. And then someone goes, oh yeah, but we did that because of this. And you're like, I don't care. Yeah, the care. real development program started once I'd driven the car. So when I say he had finished it, he had finished it to a technically safe sign-off where he yeah. was happy for someone else to drive the vehicle. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, we sat next to each other every day in the office, so I knew absolutely everything going on. At the time, there were 12 of us, so I knew every piece of that car. And but I really just wanted to experience it for the first time mm. without being a passenger sitting next yeah. to him. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, as I said, yeah, I'll admit I shed a small tear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The start of big things that was. Um, if you could only drive one car for the rest of your life and you get something that's like, I keep evolving this slightly, but basically you've got something super cheap on the side that can handle stuff. I don't know. A couple of grand. Um, and then you get one car. What's the one car? It's a... Uh... It's an interesting one, and it's it's probably going to be a love-hate comment, this. But it just is my pin-up car, and it's a pin-up car that I, I had for a period, and I wasn't comfortable driving it, and I always had that anxiety of something going wrong, and I would love to make it electric one day. It's not happening anytime soon. It's got to be in line with, obviously, when the uh, brand comes out with their own electric vehicle. But I love it, and it's a bit of a weird choice, but the Mercilago is my favorite. Ah. iconic car of what is my pinup car as yeah. such and uh i would love to see that car electric with uh to get in it and not ever worry about the vehicle and be able <laughs> to sit through london traffic and just be in what i call the batmobile as such and just be able to have that like imagine that but with a really great ev platform oh i'd love it it's interesting i i, I take your point about all the reliability and working properly because i drove yeah. one recently and it didn't work properly yeah um, it just every time i drove it if i drove 500 mile journey which is you know like i i kind of wanted to drive to wales and then i got there oh, oh it's tinkering it's like <laughs> and i know it's part of the ownership and it's what i wanted to resolve over starting luna's design but i would love to see that in beast mode ev platform yeah yeah well I'm sure I'm sure it'll happen at some point. I've got um, a few years to get it done. Most undervalued car at the moment. Most undervalued car at the moment. It's interesting. So cars go through waves, obviously, based on what the pinup cars were of their era. Mm. And one of the pinup cars of my era, which I think and I am going to state a reasonably luxury car, but I just do think they're still undervalued, is the Ferrari 355 as a classic car. It's a pinup car of a generation of, you know, my era. And you expect that as we get older to, you know, see. But I think the the industry is slightly changing where people suddenly, obviously, they're shifting what cars they're buying. And 
it's really like we've drawn a line under petrol vehicles. So it may not be the traditional cycle of where you see yeah. the ups and peaks of like classic car ownership. But, you know, you look on the market and you look at some of these 355s that are currently out there or, you know, I've got an addiction to looking at auction sites, whether it's, you know, I look for a lot of the classics and I buy a lot of the Range Rover classics yeah. through auction. But, you know, you see some of these 355s go and you're like, that's an incredible piece of engineering and product for what they're selling for. And surely they can double in value as such. But who knows with these cars? It's really hard who to call. Knows? I, I would have said that 10 years ago and I would have been wrong because yeah. they really haven't moved. <laughs> it's, it's a really, uh, I think, I, I, I see a 355 now. And I, I've, I've, I've owned the, you know, the pinnacle Ferrari for a lot of people. But mm. I, I look at a 355 and go, I think they're really cool. Like a, a friend of mine has a manual GTS. GTS, manual. Um, actually, two, two friends have now got yeah. those. Um, but I look at that and go, yes, I would have one of those, totally. Or like a 355 Challenge is a really interesting car to me. Yeah. Um, and, but we will have this point. And I don't, I don't, I, I have no idea what's going to happen. We've got one thing that's happening in a few years, which is we're going to get um, sort of uh, black boxes in our cars that will monitor speed and either ping us when we go over the speed limit, like you do in the UAE. Mm. And I think that eventually, I don't know whether we'll just have a, a backlash from everyone because it's quite different psychologically. We will just have a, a software limiter that just don't, doesn't let you speed. Absolutely, um, of course. Which... Uh... For me, is a piss off. I'm not. I'm not having that. I, mm. I understand that. I'll probably end up having a car that has it, but no way. I want to choose. There's a big difference between choosing not to speed and being forced not to speed psychologically. Absolutely, it's a. And unfortunately, all of this is coming, and I don't think any of us can put dates on when that's going to take place. Yeah, and then where does it end? Like stopping you speeding, then that's not a lot it's not a big step to go stopping the acceleration profile because mm. you know, why would you need to do that? That would be dangerous. And for me at that point, luxury manufacturers is, is gone. Yeah. It's Your a Rolls really, Royce really or Bentley and then everyone else is gone. Because <laughs> yeah, what, what you have with Rolls Royce and Bentley is you've got the real luxury of the interior and mm. what you're sitting in. And it's, you know, it's being in a, a cabin as such where you know, it breathes luxury and they look at every small piece and finite detail in those vehicles. But yeah, it's, it's re- really fascinating to see where we're going to jump to. And I'm like you, like you want to retain so much of this for as long as possible. But um, let's see. Yeah, and whether you can even drive them in cities. Who knows, all of these things. So they're either going to be worth, I think rare, interesting cars from the past will either just be worth an insane amount of money yeah. Or nothing. Absolutely. I, I don't see the middle ground. <laughs> it's a hard one to call. It is a hard one. Yeah. Right. What is the most interesting car to you at the moment? Interesting car to me at the moment. It's an interesting one that I actually don't know what I would say. I find a lot of the the brands coming out really fascinating. And they're all trying to obviously strive in different areas and some of them are going for the quickest. Some of them are going for efficient. Some of them are going for what is the most fascinating? I don't know what I'd answer. Honestly, there's, there's multiple variations to what I like about each car. There isn't one that answers everything for me. Yeah. And it's, it's why I kind of dived into this space because I thought there was, again, just lacking in the luxury EV space at the time. There was nothing on the market. Mm. And, uh, 
it's why I pushed the boundaries of what we could do, obviously, with our Rolls Royces and uh, some of the other cars we've built. Honestly, it's a bit of a, a strange one, but I'd answer my own DB6 because I Fair think enough. when you I think when you realise what we're producing with it and what's coming out on the vehicle, I think people are going to be pretty impressed by what the capability is on the company. And I'm so tied into the body of the work that I'm in it as such. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. Otherwise, there's amazing advancements, like what we said, watching that thing go around Goodwood. Yeah. Unbelievable. And honestly, they can win the Car of the Year award this year. We won the Top Gear EV last year of the EV of the Year. Let them have it. They, they yeah. did a great job getting that. <laughs> they, they, can, uh, they can take that. They, uh, it's just an incredible advancement in technology. And yeah. for a smaller player to be able to do that, actually, I'll give it to them. They, they've done an incredible job, and the team behind it have done really well with that. And, uh, yeah, I'm fascinated by what they've created. Yeah, incredible showcase. And I think one of the things that sticks in my mind is you watch either either of the drivers, um, Max or I can't remember the other guy was called, Adam, maybe apologies um, mm. when they put their foot down their eyes just go yeah let's, basically, let's, let, let's give them that question they're, they're, they're the winners there. <laughs> they're just like completely shocked for the like trying yeah. to keep it together for the entire time it's yeah, fast. They, they must have done a lot of test driving on the vehicle before because yeah that is a serious amount of power to have the handle just yeah. amazing yeah uh, i loved watching it and i think uh, half the world did as well yeah very very cool final question five car garage unlimited value Five-car garage. Rolls-Royce Phantom, five. Okay. Uh, I love our Phantom. It's the most. It's got a, a piece of what I love being in the back of. I don't like actually driving it as much anymore. It's six mm. meters long. The Mercilago has definitely got to be in there. It's my pinup yeah. car of... Uh, it's just what I saw driving around the streets when you walk around and all you want is what you see. And uh, yeah. the 190 SL... Um, my wedding car it's uh it's probably what got me into a lot of uh this whole era it was uh my father-in-law's car as i said he's got a little mechanical garage in chiswick and it was one of the cars he always had under a cover and i said oh can we get married in this car and i got a love a lot of love for that vehicle Mm. um i would probably love to take the first classic that i ever purchased back and it was one of those things that it really got me into classic cars and mm. 15 years ago 13 years ago and uh it's probably not one that's my favorite car anymore but i kind of have a lot of love for the journey it led me on within classics yeah there was a mac one cobra jet mustang which is completely against all of the other cars that i normally like european cars so yeah, it was yeah. a real like <laughs> right wing thing to go and i like, just go and buy your first mustang i mean i don't even know what made me do it my wife thought i was losing my marbles i think like an early midlife crisis, I think I was yeah, having. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I would like to see it in my garage because it really was that pivot point to me going to classic car ownership and never yeah. really looking back. Um, I would love one of the hyper cars on the EV space, but I haven't been around them enough to pick one which mm. it would be. So I'm going to stick to ICU vehicles right now because I haven't really seen like the Rimax and stuff and to really – like understand if it's one that yeah. I want in this. If I stayed, I see. I love the Zonda, mm. uh, and it, it's a real tie between a Zonda and a LaFerrari. And obviously, that's a whole different price point to the other vehicles I've mentioned. Yeah, yeah. But it's. Uh, I think when the Zonda came out, you know, they really pushed boundaries of, you know, design aspect, performance, and 
you know, drivability and how you sit in that car. And uh, it's definitely up there with one of my favorites. And uh, it's strange. It's always had that beast mode element over it, which I think every time you step foot in that, you'd probably realize that your life's in danger. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of one of those things that I'd like to experience in my life. And, yeah, uh, for sure. Which, um, which Zonda would you have? The ZF. It's just, it's just got, it's just a, it's got everything you want about what hypercar was at the time. And obviously there's a whole array and category of hypercars of that era. And, mm. you know, you've got the McLaren F1s and you've got the, and one of my favorite cars is actually when you had the F40, like, because it's raw. And again, yeah. you know, I've been in an F40. I felt my life was in slight danger. <laughs> it's, you've got yes. to respect the car while driving it. And, uh, it, it, you know, I was a passenger in the vehicle at the time and it was so engaging just being in the car, let alone driving the car, which you've experienced. And, uh, I think it's nice as a driver to have that feeling of, uh, what these cars can deliver. But the F40 is very close to being in there because it, it just, it is just a race spec, you know, Ferrari as such mm. that should never have really been road legal, but it was, and it's fantastic. And, uh, they just did an amazing job with that vehicle. And I don't know if that's four, five, or six cars, but uh, there's a few in there. Yeah, I remember like four, four or five, <laughs> possibly five. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast and also enduring. We're, we're recording this on the hottest day of the year. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, the reason I've drank so much water is, I mean, it's 33 yeah. degrees in here. <laughs> You've done well, though. You've done well. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.